Hello and welcome to the Information Podcast. I'm Tim Nostrand. And I'm Brian Reynolds. CEO and CTO, respectively, of Information Technological Holdings. And today we are talking with Alec Ramsey, the founder and CEO of Idea Crunch, a company in Australia that focuses on internationalization. Our conversation is going to be really exciting, talking about bringing companies from one country to the other and what the future looks like for countries that don't have Silicon Valley. Stay tuned. I've had a really interesting experience on a personal level before starting Idea Crunch. I think I told you before, Brang, I own a company called Churchill Gowns. Um, And my partner in Australia and I started it here about four years ago and expanded over to the UK. And we first reached out there um, about a year and a half ago now. And we are, it's given me an amazing perspective on the kind of challenges you face when you try and take a company overseas. We launched over there intending on selling products within the first few months. And just due to logistical issues, we couldn't meet that major graduation season there were these whole series of illegal differences between the Australian market and the UK market that we wouldn't have been prepared for had we not had that person on the ground. Um, Since we started selling, we've had all of these, we've come across a lot of cultural differences in terms of consumers' appetite for risk, as opposed to, you know, I think what we've talked about before is a bit of investors' appetite for risk. This consumer appetite for risk, because our business model is all about undercutting an existing company in Australia, we found that students just go, yeah, sure, I'll try out the new guys and this seems completely fine. And the launching here was no problems. In the UK, and we found that the consumers there were much more reticent to want to go out with a different company and kind of take a risk. You know, they their perspective on this is, well, you know, it's my graduation, I only get one chance. Do I want to go with a company who, even though they are 40% cheaper, I've never heard of them before. I think there's a lot of lessons to be generalized from that. The networking side of things, I I would say, is one of the other seriously important things that we didn't anticipate before we went over there and which I think is really applicable in general to businesses wanting to expand overseas. There's an organization in the UK called the Bergen Society, which is the Society for Graduation Regalia. And like, I mean, I don't know if this exists in the US or not, but there's definitely no such thing in Australia. I didn't even know there were enough people in the world interested in academic regalia to make a whole society based around it. And um, we just, you know, kind of in the time we were over there, got in touch with these guys and they've proved to be a huge help. We've got one of the members of the society on our, um, you know, as a non-executive advisor on our board. And so she's been advocating for us to universities, which has kind of helped smooth the process of entering the market a lot. Had we not taken that time and actually had someone on the ground in the UK who was able to have these conversations and talk to people, we would have missed all of that. And I think we would have probably started selling and been sued and gone to the same, um, you know, through the same pitfalls that the previous companies had. So, I think you know my like general advice to companies expanding overseas is don't think you can, don't think you know it all, and don't think you can enter the market immediately and just start selling straight away. There are so many unknown unknowns that having mm-hmm. someone there on the ground just it just reveals so much to you that you could never have predicted otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you bring up the legal differences because uh, so much of, you know, what I fear when I consider taking a business international is these legal hurdles. Uh, you know, I find in so many cases, uh, I, I guess a perfect example is GDPR. 
uh, in so many cases, the legal barriers that are put up in various jurisdictions can be such a stifle to innovation. Uh, But they also create moats. So, you know, introducing GDPR essentially means that any business that is U.S. based under a certain size simply can't afford uh, the legal investment to to really be involved in Europe, yeah. and you know the the end option there on the on the other side of that is essentially to just shut down, say we don't serve Europeans, uh, yeah. which creates more and more of these opportunities opportunities for things like Idea Crunch to start you know ultimately exploiting because people are afraid to sort of behave in those markets. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, governments, they these days, they kind of they put up so many of these barriers. And I think in many cases, you know, they're intentionally there to imp- uh, to protect some of the incumbents and, and you know, ultimately stifle innovation. Uh, there's actually a few companies that I know of that, uh, you know, their entire business model is this uh, this, you know, sort of thing of adapting business models from other countries. Uh, I guess the most famous of which being Rocket Internet in Germany. Yeah, but there's also yeah. a Japanese equivalent called Binos. It's interesting to see where they fail, though, as well. So one of the examples that I was giving a second ago, Foodora, which is one of these food delivery companies, that was started by Rocket Internet uh, in Berlin. And they've just pulled out of the Australian market, I think, as of today, because they weren't able to kind of adapt to the you know intricacy, the kind of unique details that make Australia different. Uh, it's still kind of, for the most part, centralizing the copycatting of all of those industries, which means you've got essentially a German perspective on how to copy a company from the US or wherever it may be to somewhere like Australia. And whereas Idea Crunch, I really want to be able to spread that out a lot more so that instead of having this one company with a single headquarters, you'll have kind of a hub in Australia and a hub in Germany or wherever it may be, and you know one in the US. And so when you're starting these companies, you're not starting them from a single perspective the way Rocket Internet might be, but you'd be starting them hopefully from the like, absolutely on the ground perspective of someone in that country. And I'm hoping yeah. that's going to make the difference. Yeah, I mean, you know, something that's interesting um, on my end you know, in America, there is definitely a negative connotation to the world, word copycat. <laughs> um, yep. Do you do you find that that's not the case where you're yeah, from? Yeah, this, this is an interesting question. I've thought about this. Um, I think that's because, you know, a lot of these ideas do germinate in the States. And so... Thank you. Know, <laughs> and but i mean you know it's true silicon valley has been such a hub of innovation for so long especially in the tech area and it's um you know it's built upon itself because all the resources are centralized there so therefore you're attracting so much talent and it's some amazing statistics about the kind of right. talent that that gets to um silicon valley i think i was reading recently that almost so i think it's 30 percent or 40 percent of people working in silicon valley are born overseas so they're not just you know, children of parents, they're literally immigrants in that generation. Oh, absolutely. Who have moved to America. It's yeah. huge. And then within the tech space and startups, it's almost 60% of people were born overseas who are working in tech in Silicon Valley. Uh, but it just attracts so many people because of the capital. And as a result, yeah, of course, all the ideas do start there because you've just attracted all of the talent and brought it into one spot. Um, but the result is you'll start those companies and it'll take a long time before they actually make it to somewhere else. And if you can find a way that all of that talent instead of traveling to Silicon Valley, can somewhat stay where it came from, you know, in those countries and start the businesses there, I think you'd find that 
consumers around the world would get products a lot faster. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's uh, it it is one of those uh, instances where the rich get richer for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what a you guys tell me about what your kind of perspective on the copycat idea is. I, I was I was happy to see some uh, some New Yorkers get in touch and say, "Oh, I like this," because I kind of was worried that everyone in the states would have a negative reaction towards the whole concept. Oh well, no. I mean, it's uh, first of all. You know, one of the most beloved sitcoms of American recent history is The Office. <laughs> yeah, true. That's a great point. That's that's it's the same kind of thing. You know, I, I know many people who say, oh, you know, the British office is better. But is it? You've got Steve Carell, who's stupid. And you've got Ricky Gervais, who's mean. A lot of what I think of when I think of copycatting in the tech world, I think of China. I think of... Yeah. The fact that the biggest tech company in the world is only in China and all they do is make cheaper <laughs> versions of Apple products. And so yeah. that's where the negative connotation comes from. It comes from this place of like, here's a country that thinks that they're doing so much better than us technologically and economically. And their only business model is what we're already doing cheaper. Um, yeah. There's some interesting examples, though, where that's a, a good thing. So in India, I've been told that um, there are a lot of pharmaceuticals that are invented in the States and mm -hmm. they struggle to enforce the copyrights and the patents over in India. And in fact, the government in many instances just allows people to blatantly copy pharmaceuticals because it means that the local population gets access to these drugs that are life changing that they wouldn't otherwise mm. do. And so, you know, that's kind of, I think, like an extreme example about where, you know, copycatting is, despite the fact that the pharmaceutical companies in America don't like the fact that they're missing out on all this revenue, it's really good for the local population. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, you know copyright law in America is broken fundamentally. Um, and <laughs> yeah, so I mean, anywhere, you know, ultimately with copyright law, you have a situation where, you know, you're enforcing monopolies. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a sort of a government intervention. And, I, you know, I have trouble supporting that in many cases. Yeah. So the idea generally of copycats, if you look at, you know, every major successful business, in many ways, what they tend not to do is create something that's wildly new. They yeah. make small tweaks to something that's existing and proven, but the small tweaks end up becoming so critical. You know, Facebook came into existence in the wake of MySpace. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, they were doing the same kind of thing. They just did it a little bit better. And, you know, that was the difference between a company that nobody uses anymore and something that's, you know, one of the, the biggest companies in terms of market capitalization. Yeah, and I think there's also yeah. an element of just, you know, the way that capitalism intends is intended to play out is through this, you know, vessel of perfect competition. And, you know, if it feels if it unfair, takes, if it takes a Absolutely. little bit of unfairness uh, in order to get to, you know, the ultimate like amount of progress that we're looking for, I think that's a fine outcome. And so, yeah. you know, it, it feels acceptable to me. I, I think it's interesting when you look at it on a you know, like historical macroeconomic level, because really this whole idea of when we're talking about China and copycatting, it's kind of what Western civilizations have been doing for hundreds of years, going around and stealing resources from other countries. Oh, absolutely. And, and we were fine kind of getting to where we are on the back of that. 
and you know then all of a sudden when it happens to you you're like oh that's unfair how could you how dare you <laughs> and you know like in modern day you can't you know china's not going to come over and actually take our gold you know the way yeah. <laughs> other countries might have but this is you know in some sense the technological equivalent of that and i mean i don't know who, who are we to say that that's not fair because how else are they going to kind of get up to the same level that the rest of the west is yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past China to come over and steal our gold at some point. <laughs> but you know, we'll, we'll we'll leave that to uh, to some some people in charge to figure that one out. <laughs> I was going to say as well on the kind of topic of copycatting one of the things that I also find very interesting is this idea that when you copycat businesses then you're essentially making sure the profits also stay within that country you know the alternative multinational model basically means that you know the profits from everywhere else around the world would be flowing back to the states or you know or to China or wherever the you know kind of center of innovation may be and using this idea crunch model one of the things I like is that it's going to hopefully help countries keep those profits local and Mm -hmm. You know, that helps foster development as well and, you know, innovation in a different way. And I think there's a, a much bigger question looming over the next, you know, 20 to 50 years as AI starts to automate more and more jobs in the economy. As that happens, if you let America or wherever the innovation hubs are be the only people who can put out all of this technology that's going to take over those jobs, effectively that means you'll have 47% or whatever it may be in other countries of all of the income of these people flowing through automation to the states and you'll have this um scenario where you know so i'm a big believer in universal basic income which is you know in the future as jobs are automated you're going to need governments to be able to pay out some sort of basic level of income to people because most of the jobs won't be there and then they'll be able to work on top of that but if you have a huge disparity about who controls that technology in the first place i.e you know if somewhere like silicon valley controls the majority of it you're going to have a a um welfare disparity where you'll almost have a situation where the states will be having to pay welfare payments to somewhere like Australia because 47% of Australians don't have jobs and all that money is going to the states mm-hmm. and that's going to cause like serious geopolitical issues beyond startups and you know what we're talking about so I think to some extent um, if you can avoid that by having people start copycats locally then it means that you might mitigate the like huge welfare disparity between countries that otherwise I think could occur yeah, I mean that 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 positions idea crunch as potentially staving off the Australian apocalypse. <laughs> do you do you feel that you've you you've got the sufficient wherewithal to shoulder that responsibility? Look, I don't think I can do it on my own, but <laughs> if you want to dress me up as a white knight, I'll ride into battle. You know, that that was a perfect transition into my question. What is idea crunch? Hmm. Uh, so Idea Crunch is basically a platform where uh, you can find successful ideas that exist overseas and you can apply as a potential entrepreneur to start those ideas locally and get funding for those ideas. So it's a mechanism for connecting local investors uh, and helping them find the best person who has the skill set and the experience and the persistence to be able to take an idea that exists somewhere else and make it happen locally. Wow. Okay, so what so what does your profit model look like then? Great question. Um, we something we're still trying to figure out. We basically want to be able to grow the platform as much as possible and prove out the concept and show that 
the companies that we're helping to start are actually successful and that the copycat uh, model in general is one that will work and if we can prove that out i think we need to figure out monetization afterwards um but you know i i've been through <laughs> i've kind of considered a lot of business ideas before um settling down on idea crunch as the next thing that i really want to be pushing and you know in doing that i'm a i've generally been a big believer in finding business ideas that have a clear path to profitability and in idea crunch it's kind of the exception in that it's already generated so much interest in such a short period of time. And I think the concept is uh, it's so easy for a lot of people to grasp that I think it's more important that I see how far I can grow it before we figure out how we monetize it, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, personally, uh, just thinking about it, you know, if I, if I were involved in this, the idea of being able to participate in deals feels to me like perhaps one of the most attractive uh, vehicles have you thought yeah. about you know how that would work yeah i mean absolutely and i think so for example one of the ways we raised money when we were expanding my uh previous company churchill gowns to the uk was we used an um, investment consortium for a, a good chunk of it and their model was essentially something similar to this they said look we'll connect you with all to all these investors and we'll just take a cut of the amount of money raised so you know if it looks like we're providing a lot of value to investors and that we're giving them huge amount of deal flow and we're opening up to opportunities they didn't otherwise get, then maybe they'd be happy to give us a cut from that. Um, so it's something I'd consider, but not sure yet. I mean, we'll have to see. <laughs> got it, got it. So would but, you be offended if we created the idea crunch for the United States? Wouldn't that be funny? Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> about this. Uh, I mean, no, go for it. I, I'm also a big believer in, you know, in all of these scenarios that uh, whoever can do it first and fastest wins. You know, the idea of ever copywriting things in startups or going and chasing down patents. I mean, sure, you might be able to protect yourself in the long run, but in the short term, if someone just beats you to the punch and gets there faster and executes better than you, then they're going to be the successful business. And I think this is the same in this instance. And yeah. I'm also a big believer that, you know, in the kind of startup world, entrepreneurs don't usually want to steal ideas from someone who they have you know somewhat of a connection with mm -hmm. you know if you guys wanted to take this and because it, it it is of detriment to them right like let's say you guys went and decided you wanted to start idea crunch in the u.s right now um i mean i don't see any reason why you wouldn't necessarily and maybe it'd be a good path to go down but also i think you've got your own things on your plate at the moment you know you've got a podcast you're doing and you've had successful businesses before and you probably want to start other ones um yeah i don't know I, i'd be interested to see if i mean what would you what would you think if if you took the idea and ran with it, do you think you'd feel as satisfied? You know, I think the main difficulty would be uh, that there are so many of these businesses coming from the U.S. Uh, yeah. that, that it would be probably difficult to source a lot of the ideas. I think uh, that'll be really interesting. I think that'll be a challenge for Idea Crunch in the future as to whether we can get really good ideas from other parts of the world. I'd, I would love to be able to actually be bringing a lot of ideas from India and you know even from China to the US because there's a lot of innovation that goes on there that I think from a Western perspective we don't understand or are even aware of at all. And so ultimately I think there will be an opportunity to do that and I don't know, maybe, maybe you guys will be the best place to do that. I'm not sure. I think, uh, I mean, I'm not even sure that, you know, we're the, in the best place to do that first. I think the focus for us at the start is largely going to be taking ideas from places like the US and bringing them over to other um, Western countries. But we'd, we would need to develop those networks in somewhere like China and India before we could bring ideas back 
to the US. And I think, you know, if you guys were to say to me now, well, I want to start Idea Crunch in the US, I mean, good luck to you, but I think you'd have the same problem. I would if I wanted to focus on the US market right now, yeah, which is that totally. we don't have the networks. It, it, it is a little out of our wheelhouse. Uh, <laughs> that hasn't stopped us in the past. That's true. That's true. You know, yeah. I have a question for you. Um, have you had any, uh, you know, early successes? Yeah, I mean, one of the um, ones we've had a lot of interest in, and this is kind of going to be our first test run, is the... Uh, we've kind of titled the company Brace Yourself and it's uh, orthodontic home-delivered realigners. So it's a company that exists in the US called Smile Direct Club and the whole concept behind it is basically to have... Do you know what Invisalign is? Uh, Yeah, Invisalign braces. Exactly, yeah. So those invisible plates and you basically put them in your mouth and you move your teeth and a month later you put one another one in that's a millimeter slightly different and so over time your teeth realign themselves. So the business model there is delivering those um, and being administered by a dentist, but delivering them directly to people's houses. So you're getting the same services you would, except that you don't have to go to a dentist on High Street and pay their exorbitant prices for rent and everything else. It's all just done online and through the post. Um, and that's a that's an idea that we've had a lot of interest in. Um, and it's one I think we'll get, and we focused mainly on Australia with that idea to begin with, because you know I, it was easy for me to jump up, jump up interest physically being here. But it's something that I would really like to see um, pushed into Asia. I think it'll be a particularly interesting business model going and being taken to somewhere like China because um, China doesn't have an expectation about what orthodontic delivery should necessarily look like yet. Um, You know, orthodontics have existed in the Western world for a long time, but a lot of China, you know, is kind of only just coming out of the third world now. And sure. you know, if you look if you look outside the big centers in the rural areas of China, people are still very poor. But it means you have increasingly every year a huge portion of the population who are discovering all these services for the first time ever, you know, whether they be orthodontics or different types of education. And so in general, I think there's a huge opportunity to define the way they want to consume those products. Mm. Um, and I think like dental, honestly, is something that they haven't, hasn't been a huge focus in uh, China and as it becomes more of a focus and as it becomes more available you could define this as the medium by which you should be getting orthodontic treatment and that would be a huge opportunity so I'd love to see what the interest is going to be like in somewhere like China well if nothing else I have to say brace yourself much better name that's great isn't it it has never even occurred to me that uh in china it's rare to go for orthodontic work i mean i'm not particularly looking at chinese people's teeth as i walk by but perhaps that's something i should start doing yeah um can so you've been involved in the australian tech scene you know we're familiar with new zealand but australia it's a whole nother beast what makes the australian tech scene unique what's it like the Australian tech scene still loses a lot of people, as do a lot of tech scenes around the world overseas. Um, you know, that is, and a lot of our actual talent is going overseas. And we've had a lot of uh, political focus over the last few years around innovation. You know, we've got a Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, currently, who um, has said that he really wants to put innovation, push innovation in Australia. And on the face of it, that means that he wants to be able to increase the size of VC funds here. He wants to be able to retain a lot more of the um, you know, people who specialize in tech and all the developers. But I don't know if that's being executed well. Um, and that's not necessarily the fault of the government. It's not necessarily them trying to pull the wool over our eyes and just sell some sort of story. I think there are a whole bunch of political concerns in Australia that are getting in the way of us developing what we need to. And in many ways, I think the um, Australian 
startup scene and tech scene is it's going to be boom or bust. You know, I think there's no middle ground where we kind of slowly creep up. Either we're going to develop a really fantastic ecosystem that works incredibly well. And you know, Australia does have a lot of history of innovation, you know, with Cochlear and um, there's a lot of potential for us to be able to do that. We have a lot of talent, but I think it's either going to reach a certain uh, capacity where it feeds back onto itself and it becomes self-sustainable or otherwise I think it's going to kind of fizzle out. And I'm not sure, you know, I think we've got the right um, approach and we understand as a country what we want to do and how we want to grow it. I'm not sure if we are going to execute on that or not and that'll remain to be seen. Do you guys have a fun name for the the startup scene out there? You know, out here (laughs) in New York, we call it Startup Alley. Out there, you know, in the Los Angeles area, they call it Silicon Beach uh, I, I just wrote down right here, Silicon Reef. Silicon Reef. That's a good one. I like that. that a, I know yeah. in um, I know in London they you, have Silicon Roundabout, that. which is you a can, very you specific. You can actually use that if you'd like. I'll, uh, I'll take Silicon yours. Reef. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You can only use Silicon uh, Reef for the next couple of years, unfortunately. You, you, exactly. That's what I was about to say. You know, the problem with that is that the reef is kind of dying here. So Silicon Reef really is putting us into that second category of of bust <laughs> rather than boom. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a pretty damning statement there, but yeah. I think it's you, a, it's a, you actually, said it with good intention. Yeah, an interesting parallel though, because again, with the you know the reef here, the government knows what needs to be done to fix it, and it really is a political question as to whether we will implement the necessary changes or not to save the reef. And maybe that's an almost perfect parallel to what's happening in the startup ecosystem. Well, Silicon Reef. Uh, Silicon Reef, it, it is here on the Information Podcast. <laughs> Wow. Uh, um, so if you could, any business that you've seen somewhere overseas, that you hmm. as a consumer, what would you want to see in Australia? Oh, as a consumer. Yeah. That's an interesting way to, I was thinking about this recently from a perspective of, you know, if I were to be starting a company myself and, you know, had, had I answered that question, I would have said to you, I wish I had started the equivalent of Casper Mattresses because... You know, as I, said, I think I said before, there are so many opportunities um, all around the world for this business model to work. It's relatively simple and it's all about the execution. It's an exciting product. It'd be incredibly fun to do. Um, from the consumer perspective, what would I like to see in Australia? I think there's a few option opportunities that may play out to be fantastic. Like, for example, the kind of, you know, which is all the rage right now in Silicon Valley, are these e-scooters. Um, you might find that in in Australia that actually in somewhere like Sydney could work incredibly well because Sydney's quite hilly and the problem we've had with bike sharing here is that most people can't be bothered riding a bike up a hill and so we don't actually do, do the bike sharing model that well whereas something like e-scooters you might find um, could work much better in Sydney or even e-bikes uh, so you know I think that's something that could it remains to be seen but could um, be incredibly successful over here and consumers could want a lot. It's always hard to answer that question, isn't it, from a consumer's perspective? Because, you know, if you knew that this was going to be the success, um, then well, hopefully would... we'd all be jumping on the bandwagon and starting it right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it's hard It's hard to think of yourself as a consumer when you've spent so much of your time and your effort and your brain energy creating and trying to be on the other side of things. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear more actually 
of the American perspective, not just on kind of copycat businesses in general, which is what we talked about before, but your perspective as an American on what it would mean to you if this existed and if we were you know, copying ideas from the States and therefore limiting the potential of entrepreneurs in the States to capitalize as much as they could otherwise. Does that seem to you like it is cutting your grass and does that seem unfair or does that seem like, oh, well, understandable, these other people want the services? Well, to be, you know, after hearing you talk about it, I definitely see kind of, the, I feel like the word copycat isn't accurate. I feel like there's, mm. I think this is an incremental change, you know, like you were saying, the differences, you know, in Churchill gowns from Australia to the UK were significant enough to, in my mind, be a completely different business. Uh, yeah. So it, it, I feel like an American perspective is going to demand I think that you want to just strike the word copycat <laughs> from that because truly copycat has this connotation, you know, and I think yeah. if you introduce the word copycat, all of a sudden, you know, Seamless is going to want to have a representative who talks to Idea Crunch before you go and make another Seamless, you know, the Seamless of Madagascar. Um, you know what I'm saying? Whereas yeah, if, yeah, if it was more of a... Uh, if you if you called it a local adaptation service, a business uh, localization, business localization service kind of something. You wouldn't like feel it. as bad, yeah. I yeah, think that's an interesting one because I agree with that. But on the other hand, the fact that copycat uh, elicits a certain reaction is also really good for the publicity side of things. That's so. true. <laughs> that <laughs> is fair. That is a click-worthy headline. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think on the perspective of... You know, I we we have businesses, and so we create things. And I'm trying to imagine what would happen if, you know, Idea Crunch came along and introduced it in some other market. On one hand, we are unlikely ourselves to have done that. Uh, we hmm. have a very America for first sort of focus uh, when we think about things because it is the market we understand. And ultimately, you know, I think especially at the early stages of startup. Uh, thinking internationally can be such a huge distraction and such a barrier to solving the real core challenges that your business yeah. has. However, I still might feel, you know, a sense of, of, of wrongdoing if somebody had just, you know, took my idea and did it somewhere else. <laughs> One thing that, that, you know, you might want to consider here is offering some kind of right of first refusal there, you know, reaching out to these businesses and seeing if in some way, you know, they might want to work with you. Uh, yeah, which you speaks know. to the kind of franchise model almost that we took with Churchill Gowns going overseas. Exactly. Absolutely. And in that way, you become sort of a fund uh, that can take advantage of a lot of the things that they've already built, you know, like, like yeah. we were talking about earlier about the redundant work, you know, they've probably got 80% of the way there. What they need is a foot on the ground who understands the market and can, you know, adapt to it in real ways. Uh, it could potentially become this, you know, very large, you know, franchise consulting business uh, where you're ultimately facilitating these transactions and, you know, leveraging larger networks. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's there's no room for really considering people's feelings in business. And so, <laughs> you know, I think that at the end of the day, 
if somebody's going to be offended by you being successful, uh, that's more of a them problem than it is a you problem. That's all for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Again, we were talking to Alec Ramsey of Idea Crunch. Learn more at idea-crunch.com. And hey, thanks again for listening to our podcast. If you want to, drop us a line for any reason. If you know anybody who should be good on the podcast or you just want to share some thoughts, email us at podcast at informationholdings.co.